Our study of Genesis has brought us to perhaps one of the most uncomfortable passages in Scripture, at least one of the most uncomfortable passages in Genesis. We began studying this chapter last week. We've been considering some important lessons that we must learn from this tragic and awkward account of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mentioned last week that this is one of the benefits of a systematic approach to preaching and expository preaching, that we don't just sit back and get to choose our favorite passages and the ones that make us happy and feel good every, every week, but we take what is next in our study because we believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is all profitable and God knows what we need better than we do. And sometimes we need to come to the difficult passages and have the difficult conversations for the sake of knowing who God is and what it means to walk with Him. And so that is what we're about here in Genesis chapter 19. This chapter is all about the sin of Sodom and the surrounding cities. It is an account of God destroying the cities and mercifully rescuing Abraham's nephew Lot. This chapter addresses the sin, not only of the cities, but the sin that followed Lot out of the city. And so it's something that is important for all of us to understand. And though this chapter is an uncomfortable text and it is a difficult one to read, it is also a careful text. It is one that has an important purpose for all of us, even today. So why is this chapter here? Why is it recorded the way that it is recorded? I asked that question last week, and I gave you an answer last week, and I want to give it again so that we understand where we're going with this. For one thing, I believe this text is here to help us understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I know that might sound redundant, but sin is incredibly evil. And we need to understand that. This passage teaches us about the, the subtle and deceptive beginning that sin often has in our lives. That then leads to a tragic and destructive end. Throughout Scripture, the name Sodom becomes a byword. Throughout human history, the name Sodom is a byword universally known as an illustration of the vileness and destructiveness of sin. Sodom, as it were, stands out like a brightly flashing warning sign telling us that sin will always take us further than we ever wanted to go. It will always keep us longer than we ever wanted to stay. And it will always cost us more than we ever intended to pay. Now, another reason that I believe this passage is recorded for us here is to teach us about the justice and grace of God. Back in chapter 18, as God was fellowshipping with Abraham, and he's about to leave and go rain down this fire in judgment on the cities, he stops. And he has a conversation, as it were, with himself about why he should tell Abraham what he is about to do. 
And he says this in verse 19 of chapter 18. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, God intends for this judgment on Sodom to be a lesson for Abraham, a lesson about God's own justice and righteousness so that Abraham will teach it in his home and to the descendants that will come after him. This is a crucial lesson on who God is in his righteousness and justice. You see, to that point, Abraham had known the mercy of God as God rescued him out of his pagan city. Abraham had even known the gentle chastening of God as Abraham's faith wavered from time to time. But now Abraham needed to see a new lesson about the justice and judgment of God that resides on those who are lost in sin. It is another important lesson on who God is and what it means to follow Him. So, with those purposes in mind, my approach to this chapter has been simply to march through it and consider four important lessons that we learn about God and about sin and about judgment and about His grace. So, let's look at this painful chapter and read it together. If you'll follow along as I read Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. 
but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. When the sun, the sun had risen on the earth, when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The first lesson that we learned from this passage, we learned last week, and it was this, the danger of spiritual drift. If you weren't here last week or haven't heard the message from last week, I'd encourage you to go to the website or the podcast page and Listen to, to last week's message. We looked at verses 1 through 11 primarily, and we saw the danger of spiritual drift from two vantage points. One, from the spiritual decline of Lot, how he got to where he was, and two, 
in the sinful degradation of the city of Sodom, how they got to be so evil. We considered how Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham, who was rescued out of Ur of the Chaldeans, just as Abraham was, how he went from there to becoming a a prominent citizen in Sodom, now on the verge of losing everything. We noted that what led from point A to point B was a gradual progression of foolish choices. And what's more, we considered the effect that Sodom had on Lot, causing him to lose his moral discernment, his testimony, and ultimately his own family. In all of this, we saw how conflicted Lot was. A a tormented man as he lived in that city, knowing how sinful the city was, yet also drawn to it and wanting to participate in it at least a little bit. And We noted last week, just like many professing Christians today, that Lot was uncomfortable in his city, uncomfortable with the sin of his city, yet also strangely drawn to it and complicit in the sinful thinking of his city, willing to endure it in small, seemingly harmless doses. But then, after considering Lot, we also considered the city itself. That it wasn't just that these sins were present in the city. After all, these sins tend to be present just about everywhere. But what made Sodom unique at that moment was the all-pervasive nature of their sin. That it was practiced openly and it was even celebrated to a man across the whole city. And the emphasis of chapter 19 here is on the fullness of the sin, the comprehensiveness of the sin, the pervasiveness of it, and the celebration of it throughout the whole city. This isn't just a city where the sin is committed in a dark corner. This is a city much like our own world today, where the sin has been brought out into the light and embraced and celebrated. This characteristic of the city applied not just to their sexual perversion, but to their pride, to their violence, to their objectification of human beings, their denial of the image of God in men, and so their abuse of one another at every level. But all of this is highlighted by the homosexual nature of their sin which is not just an expression of a God-given desire used in a wrong way. It is actually a disordered desire. It is actually a rejection of God's design altogether. That, along with the pattern that we saw outlined last week in Romans chapter 1, shows a picture of the fullness of their sin, the culmination of their sin and rebellion against God. And the point has come where the patience of God has run out and the judgment is about to be poured out. And so, from this lesson on the danger of spiritual drift last week, looking at Lot and the city, we we concluded with five points of application. I'll give them to you real quick. First of all, spiritual drift often begins 
with a neglect of the holiness of God and a desire to be near the world and respected by it. Number two, spiritual drift often occurs gradually and without notice over a long period of time. Number three, the one that I think stuck out to most of you the most, sin makes us stupid. Number four, spiritual drift can happen even to those within the covenant community. Believers, we are not immune to this. And number five, spiritual discernment then. Spiritual discernment often is not a question of right versus wrong, but smart versus foolish. Just because we can do it doesn't mean we should. And we must think about the long-standing consequences when we make our decisions. That brings us now to our second lesson. We're picking up where we left off last time. Our second lesson from Sodom. We've seen the danger of spiritual drift. Now I want us to consider the reality of God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment. We see this mainly in verses 12 to 26. By the time we get to verse 12, the intensity of this situation has reached a fever pitch. Do you sense it? When you get to this point, in verses 10 and 11, the angels had rescued Lot from the vicious hands of the men of Sodom. They pulled him back into the house. They've struck all the men of the city with blindness. And now you have all the men of the city out in the street, blind and no doubt worked up into a violent rage, still groping for the door. This just goes to show how deeply rooted their sin was, that even after being struck blind by these angels, they are still determined to get to the door and get to these men. Truly, the depravity of sin has no boundaries or limits. Let's never forget that. But now we get a sense in verse 12 of an intense urgency. As the angels tell Lot what is about to happen, they warn him, you have any other family members in the area? Go get them and get out of the city. In verse 13, they say, why? We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Make no mistake, these two strangers that came into the city were not a couple of activists in a minority that came to silence a city they didn't like. They were here at the command of God himself, of Yahweh himself, to obliterate the city. And why? Because of their sin. The reason for destroying this city should have been patently obvious to Lot at this point. The men were still roaming about the city, trying to find the door. The intensity of the attack on his house by these men. The miraculous rescue by the angels. And now the urgency of their call for Lot to get out of the city. You would think there would be some urgency on the part of Lot and his family to get out. That this was enough. But look at verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. 
I don't know how exactly he worded that or how exactly his face showed what he was thinking. But whatever it was, we read this. He seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting or joking. They didn't take him seriously. And I want to give Lot the benefit of the doubt that he believed what the angels were saying. I think he did. But look at how his sons-in-law responded. They thought he was joking. Couldn't take him seriously. Now, who were these guys? Well, they were the betrothed fiancés of his daughters. The daughters that he just offered to the men of the city. But notice something else. Lot had to go out in order to speak to them. That seems to indicate that these fiancés of the two daughters Lot just offered to the men were actually a part of that crowd, banging on the door. And here we find that as Lot goes out and tries to communicate to them that he has lost his credibility in such a way that they could not take him seriously even when he warned them of great judgment to come. This is part of the result of Lot's compromise and participation in the city. Lot's compromise with sin and his participation to whatever degree it was in the vice of the city became a serious hindrance to his testimony. So much so that no one took him seriously when he warned of the judgment to come and tried to call them to flee. Listen, Christian, playing around with sin Playing around with sin harms your witness for Christ in this world. You can talk about being missional all you want to, but if that simply means you're going into the world to be like the world, thinking that you will reach the world that way, it will not happen. Because the world will not take you seriously, nor should they. Playing around with sin harms your witness for Christ in this world, whether you realize it or not. Once more, we also need to understand that playing around with sin hinders your ability to respond to the Lord. Playing around with sin hinders your responsibility, your, your ability to respond to the Lord. Look at verses 15 and 16. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! As morning dawned, he's still there. And here come the angels. Get up. Get out. Verse 16. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him and wonderfully merciful. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. It's now the next morning. Lot still hasn't left. The angels warn him again. And he still continues to linger, dragging his feet, dangerously hesitant to leave the condemned city. So the angels, you know, wonderful act of mercy. And frankly, I think a picture of salvation as it's described in Ephesians 2, as we'll see later. They grab him by the hand and drag him out of the city. Though Lot believed what the angels said was true, it appears he didn't feel the urgency to get up and leave right now. Like so many today, he was simply too at home in this world, to take the reality of God's judgment seriously. And even when the angels finally did get him out of the city, did you see what he did? 
the, the language of the text indicates that the land of Zoar, the city of Zoar, was actually in the crosshairs as well. And they bring him out of the city and they tell him, go into the hills and hide where you'll be safe. And Lot says, no, 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 please, no. I can't do that. I'll be in danger there. Because he couldn't see how much danger he was in staying in the city. And so he begs them to allow him to take refuge in this little city nearby instead of the hills. Lot still hasn't seen the, the seriousness and the reality of God's judgment on sin, not just on the city, but on all the surrounding area. He hasn't yet realized that whatever peace and security he was looking for in the city was not to be found there. It was a false security. It was a fraud. And Lot's wife is a picture of that. As they leave, she turns around. This wasn't merely a backward glance. This was somebody who had been warned to flee and yet still followed her heart back toward the city and she was consumed in its destruction. Showing us a vivid illustration of a powerful truth that you will be a partaker in the fate of whatever city you find your identity in whether it be the city of God or the city of man. Friends, if you are seeking your peace and security in this world, and some of you are, even some who claim to be Christians, you may be still trying to find your peace and security in this world. You are in grave danger of a great fall. You are like the house that is built on the sand, Jesus says, that cannot stand in the storm of God's judgment. Nothing in this world can protect you from the judgment of God. Nothing. Now, having seen all of this, we read in verses 23 through 26 about the actual judgment, what it actually looked like as it was poured out on these cities. Once Lot arrives in Zoar, in verse 23, we read in verses 24 and 25 that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and the whole valley. We could talk about where the sulfur and fire came from. Some say they were hot springs and volcanoes and all this, and maybe that was it. But make no mistake, the text tells us this was from the Lord. This was from God. It was a supernatural event a divine act of utter destruction. And what we need to see from this passage is what the judgment of God is really like. And we see three things about the judgment of God that we need to understand. One, it is swift. Two, it is severe. Three, it is sweeping. The judgment of God is swift. Other than Lot's family, it appears that the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, so far as we can see, had no warning that the judgment was coming, except for the warning of their own consciences. Because we know Scripture teaches that God has written this kind of stuff on the hearts of all men. They knew what they were doing was sinful, but they didn't anticipate the judgment. Now, this didn't mean that they didn't know about their, about their sin. But what it does show us is that God is extremely patient, and He gives long opportunity 
for people to turn in repentance and faith. But Scripture also makes clear that God is a God who even now is sharpening His sword and preparing the arrow so that at any moment He might unleash His divine wrath on those who are His enemies. That's a frightful picture, my friends. And the judgment of God is swift. Secondly, the judgment of God is severe. His judgment is patient and fair. His assessment is accurate. But when His judgment drops, it is severe. Why? Because sin is severe. Severe judgment is appropriate on severe sin. And so when we see the fire and brimstone consuming these cities and all that surrounds them, we see a glimpse of the severity, not just of God's judgment, but the severity of sin that demands it. But we need to understand also that it is just a glimpse. Because Scripture teaches of an eternal judgment that is to come. An eternal judgment that is to come on all who are not in Christ. And I know it isn't an uncomfortable topic, and I rarely hear people talking about it today. But the reality is, there is a place called hell, and there is a place called the lake of fire, and all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be there for eternity under the permanent punishment of God. And what we see here is a picture of the severity of our sin and the justice of God in obliterating these cities and dealing with the sin in this way. And we need to see not just that the judgment of God is swift and severe, but that it is also sweeping. No one escaped except for Lot and his two daughters, and that by a marvelous act of grace and mercy. No part of this city was left unburned. It is a picture of the comprehensiveness of God's judgment. It will be on all the wicked. Only those who are rescued by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore that judgment in our place, only those will be saved. So why is it important for us to look at this here? As much as I would rather tell you something wonderful and joyful and make you all feel good today, and we will by the end, so hang with me. Why do we need to see this dark aspect? So we need to understand that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you are without Christ this morning, that is not going to bode well for you. The Scripture makes undeniably clear in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And yet, by God's infinite and matchless grace, as we see demonstrated even in Lot, we also find out that the free gift of God is eternal life. How? through Jesus Christ our Lord, that it is actually possible to be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That God's justice and judgment is grace is great, but so is His mercy. And so I urge you, my friends, in light of the coming judgment of God, be reconciled to God. 
through Jesus Christ. Today is the day. Now is the time. God's judgment is real, but so is his mercy. And you can be delivered from the dreadful judgment of God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want us to skip ahead to verses 30 through 38 now and consider a third lesson. We've seen the the danger of spiritual drift. We've seen the reality of God's judgment. Now I want us to consider the root of sin. One more dark point before we get to the good stuff. The root of sin. We can get an idea of these verses here without having to go through every gory detail. What happens in these verses take place after the cities are destroyed. After righteous Lot has been rescued from the city and put into a safe place, Lot and his daughters are now living in a cave in the mountains. Go figure, so much for the safety of Zoar. He was afraid to live there, it says. But at least finally he's made the move. Now in an attempt to raise up children for themselves to carry on the family name, Lot's daughters commit a sin that would have been welcomed and at home in Sodom. It just goes to show you that you can take the person out of Sodom, and yet Sodom can still reside in the heart of the person. It sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? To those of you who are familiar with the aftermath of the flood, the righteousness of mankind had reached its, its zenith and the Lord rains down judgment on the earth and he destroys everybody except for one righteous man and his family. And very soon after the flood, we find them engaged in sin. And it shows us once again that sin resides deeply within the heart of every person. We might have thought that after these acts of judgment, there would have been a fresh start with righteous people and the influence of sin would finally be eradicated and those who were grieved under it would finally be liberated. Yet we see a very important reality for mankind and it is this, the root of sin is not our circumstances. It is not our city. It is our own hearts. Sin is not a problem that exists out there. Well, I'm not a part of Sodom. Well, at this point, neither was Lot. It's not out there. And we dare not look down on the people of Genesis 19 with any sort of self-righteous inclination, as if we're not like they are. One important truth that we learn here about sin is that its roots are in here with me, with you, with everyone. We may not behave as badly as the people of Sodom, or Lot's wife, or his daughters, or even as Lot himself, but our hearts are depraved to the core. And but for the restraining grace of God by His Holy Spirit, We are capable of all the sins that we have seen right here and more. We all, apart from God's mercy, are headed for the same judgment that they were. You see, the fundamental problem 
is not our behavior, but our sinful hearts. It's not our surroundings, but our hearts. Our behavior is simply a reflection of what's inside. And we, what we need most then is to become a new creation. What we need most is a new heart, not new surroundings, not new circumstances, not new behavior. We need a new heart. And this is something we cannot do for ourselves. We see it over and over and over again. God can put them in the perfect circumstances. He can remove sin. He can even show a a magnificent display of His justice so as to scare people out of their sin, and yet they keep going back. Why? Because we cannot solve our, our ultimate problem on our own. Only God can give us a new heart. And that brings us to one final glorious lesson that I want us to see from this passage. We've seen the danger of spiritual drift, the reality of God's judgment, the root of sin. And now let us consider the grace of God. The grace of God. Let's see where the grace of God fits into this story. Back in verses 27 to 29, Abraham comes back into the picture. He rises early in the morning. He goes back to that place overlooking Sodom where he had that conversation with the Lord, where he pleaded with the Lord, if there are just 10 people righteous in the city, would you spare the the city on behalf of the righteous? And God says, yes, I will spare the city. And now Abraham goes out early in the morning and he sees, as it were, a furnace smoking, billowing black smoke coming up into the sky. In verse 29, we read, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. I don't think Abraham knew that yet. What Abraham's probably thinking at this moment is that there weren't any righteous in the city. That would have been correct, except for the one that the New Testament calls righteous, and that's Lot. But we read, God remembered Abraham. What was it about Abraham that God remembered? Well, I suppose it could be his covenant with him, his promise that he would make Abraham into a great nation, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But I think even closer to the context of this story, God remembered Abraham's prayer at the end of Genesis 18, that he would spare the city on account of the righteous. Now, if God had answered that prayer, the way Abraham prayed it, if God had even spared the city on behalf of one righteous man, then the judgment would have been averted. The justice wouldn't have been seen. But God actually answered the prayer of Abraham in a way that Abraham didn't anticipate. He did rescue the righteous person. And he still poured out judgment and displayed his justice. Now, I suppose we could say something here as we did when we studied chapter 18. I suppose we could say something about the power of the prayers and the righteous influence of godly people in the world today. And there is something to say about that. 
And I suppose we could say something about how God answers prayer, that he always answers prayer according to his will and according to his righteous character. And it may not always look exactly like we ask, but he answers and he does what is good and right. But I want us to notice something else here too, in addition to all of that. And that is simply that the grace of God was extended to Lot in spite of everything we have already read about him. His testimony is gone. His discernment has faded. His morality is twisted. And yet God calls him righteous in 2 Peter chapter 2. Why? How? The same way he calls you righteous. The same way he calls me righteous. Not because Lot was so good, because he wasn't, but because God had chosen to set his merciful favor on him and preserve him. This is a stunning picture of how salvation works. You see, you and I are like Lot. Without Christ, we're lost in sin and we're happy to stay. Yeah, we're vexed, we're bothered by some things of the world. Everybody is, but we're there. We're not looking for a reason to leave. In fact, we're looking for a reason to stay. We don't want out. And then God in his mercy comes and grabs us, as it were, by the hand and drags us out of the city of man, almost against our will, but he creates in us a new will. He creates in us a new heart. He gives us faith to believe. We're not good in and of ourselves. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And we're loving the darkness. In order for God to save us, He must regenerate our hearts. And praise God, He does. He grants us new life, and He gives us the ability to believe. He leads us into that new life. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to see how the Apostle Paul describes this, and we need to see it with our own eyes. Ephesians chapter 2. This is exactly what God does for all who come to faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. You are spiritually dead, and you were following the courses of the world. You weren't standing afar off. You were part of it following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like Sodom, just like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, some of the most powerful words in all scripture, those two simple words, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. There is an aspect of God's glory that you cannot see unless sin enters into the world and he saves you from it. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Verses 1 through 3. Through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The grace is a gift. The faith is a, is a gift. The salvation is a gift. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. That's a new creation. He didn't just pull us out and set us back to square one. No, He made us a new creation in Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus today, you have received His grace in just this way. The same way Lot did. By the Lord mercifully setting His favor on you and graciously pulling you out of the darkness into the marvelous light of His gospel. And friends, if you are not in Christ today, you can be in just this way. You can be saved by God's grace right now delivered from the eternal punishment of sin that rests on you and brought into the family of God in the forgiveness and righteousness that Christ offers to you even now in this moment. So I urge you, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. There is no one who has called on Him who will ever be cast out. So my friends, let's examine our hearts today. Let's consider who we've seen in this chapter. Are you like the men of Sodom, lost in your sin and loving it? Or are you like Lot's son-in-law, scoffing at the idea of God's judgment or the notion that it could ever touch you? Or are you like Lot's wife, having been warned yet not obedient to God and longing to go back to the darkness of the world? Or are you like Lot's daughters, perhaps coming out of the world, but still letting it live on in you? Or are you like Lot, not quite comfortable with the world, but comfortable enough to live in it and enjoy its pleasures? Or are you like Abraham? living close to the Lord and experiencing His grace. Genesis 19 is a difficult chapter for us to read and study. Here we learn the danger of spiritual drift and playing around with sin. We learn the reality and the severity of God's judgment on sin. We learn the root of sin that begins in our own hearts, but in it all, we also learn about the amazing grace of our merciful God, providing a way for us to be rescued from sin and judgment. By faith in Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God and receive eternal life. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want us to see how the Apostle Paul applied this truth to people who were like the people of Sodom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What hope is there? Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. And I might be looking at some who could say, such was I. 
but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, let us run to Christ. Because He stands ready to save all who call on His name. Believers, let us live for Christ, whose grace has rescued us from judgment and granted us eternal life. And let us, like Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world as Lot was. But what? Be transformed. You can be transformed. How? He says, by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. Friends, we can be reconciled to God and we can love, we can live in the, in the light and the joy of a godly life at peace with Him. Let's understand the danger of spiritual drift. Let's understand the reality of God's judgment. Let's recognize that the root of our sin is within ourselves, and let's, let's come to grips with the grace of God who frees us from that sin and brings us into His family and makes us His own precious children. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father,